I start my day with ambiguity. I have no clue what the rest of my day is going to look like. And I and I enjoy that. If I know that I have a calendar and there are 10 things set on it, I hate that day because I got to sit down and commit to the calendar and that just is a nightmare for me. Welcome to another edition of Contra Minds. In this episode, we have Karthik Sundaram. Karthik is the president and CEO of Purple Patch Services. Purple Patch Services is a US-based B2B marketing company providing B2B marketing solutions for Silicon Valley companies and the technology industry in the US. Karthik is an engineer and he holds a double masters, a masters in industrial design from NID Ahmedabad and an MS in technical communications from the Illinois Institute of Technology. Karthik brings in his engineering thinking process thinking and his content driven thinking into the solutions that he provides for his clients over to my conversation with karthik hi karthik thank you very much for uh, taking time and uh, joining me on this contraminds podcast so as i was preparing for this interview karthik i couldn't uh, help but notice that you have taken multiple risks various leaps in your career from being an engineer to being a advertising professional to being a designer to be a content uh, specialist to actually running probably one of the most reputed firms in b2b marketing in silicon valley so as i talk about it i want to first know what was your upbringing like how did you decide to become an engineer uh, how did you get motivated to really look at some interesting takeoffs in your career so can you talk about that a bit sure thanks sami thanks for asking me to be on this uh, podcast my um upbringing was um a combination of where my father was in the air force my mother was a school uh, a math tutor teacher in the uh, kendriya vidyalaya system so um it was a pretty i would say semi conservative family we uh, we came from chennai we came from tamil nadu very conservatively grown parents but exposure of their careers uh helped us look at things differently all the time uh my biggest influence has been my uh mother my grandmother and my aunt right so uh my family was very powerful they were very they were a group of very empowered women very very forward thinking people who believed that the the biggest achievement in life is to have multiple journeys without wondering or worrying about the destination right so that was very early on uh, part of both my sister and my psyche if you will and i think that has helped me be where i am today So when you really ask me that I've taken multiple risks I think I want to read the reword that as I've taken multiple journeys right so for me the destination isn't as important as the journey so that's why if you look at my linkedin you probably see a whole host of logos out there that I'm starting up and the goal in that for me is to just experiment see where it is take it to completion right that's one of the biggest things in life is when you start something you want to see it completed now 
seeing it completed doesn't necessarily mean that that has to be successful. It could be a failure too, right? But to seeing it to a completion to me is an achievement by itself. And the amount of learning that I get in that is, you know, unheard of. It's off the charts. So that's one reason why I'm constantly experimenting, right? That is, that is just how I am as of today. So uh, school was pretty boring. Um, I got into a lot of trouble. Uh, had to salvage me out many, many, many times, much to her embarrassment. Um, but, you know, for, for, for a family that's in Chennai and you're done your 12th, there were only two or three options in those days. You do either engineering or you go to law school, which was very rare, or you go to medical, which I had no interest in. Or you go do the traditional BCom or do physics, math, whatever you want to do at that point in time. So uh, I joined engineering. I thoroughly enjoyed the college. Four years was a lot of fun. One of the things being in a semi-rural area like Anamlai is that you don't necessarily stay there most of the time, right? Everybody, especially city slickers like uh, us, typically came back to Chennai almost every weekend. I mean, I had my roommate who used to launder his clothes every week and come back only with five sets of clothes for the day a week. Right? So, <laughs> um, so one thing I discovered other than, you know, the, the traditional engineering was, you know, there was a dental school, there was a medical school, and... A lot of us used to travel together on the trains and buses back and forth between Chennai and Chidambaram. And we got into, you know, going out for debate competitions, all these cultural events and so on and so forth. So much so that, um, you know, I, I pretty much paid for most of my engineering fees, winning competitions out there. And, and then I... Uh, you know, I, then you get on to what I call the pig bacon machine, which is basically you join a Caterpillar or you join Hindustan Motors. And that was, that I think was a double-edged sword. In one way, it gave me a lot of exposure on engineering. And I went into, so I was in the whole vendor development space where you had to go develop new vendors to build new components and it was amazing. I mean, I've seen, um, you know, uh, metal stamping machines where the stamping die was actually powered by bricks, not even by steam or fire or any one of them. They were actually bricks that they would load and it will fall physically. That was It was as rudimentary as that, but the end product was fantastic, right? So I discovered this whole concept of, End delivery being, you know, the only outcome that you're measured on very early on in life, right? So people measure you only on what you produce. They don't care about what journey you went through to produce that. And on the other hand, getting on a bus at 6.30 in the morning and going to office was not my style at all. I was like, this doesn't work for me. And... Uh, so one of my senior had gone to this institute called the National Institute of Design out of engineering. Um, he right now works in the East Coast 
in Bank of America and all of that. And he had he had come back from the interview and uh, when I was in third year, he was in the fourth year and he was like super excited about this. He said, hey, there's this institute in Ahmedabad. It's like beautiful and all that. That's a, That kind of remained in my head for a long time. And I was thinking, you know, how do engineers, what is design? I mean, there was nothing, no books, nothing to even go read about what design is all about. It was really, really early days to even think of design as a career, right? The exposure of design in Tamil Nadu was zero, I would say that, right? Because NID being in Ahmedabad, you know, there, there were a lot of, uh, I mean, for some reason, there were a lot of Keralites, Bengalis, and of course, Delhi, Bombay, Ahmedabad people who all knew about NID. Tamil Nadu was completely unexposed to the concept of design at that point. So, I mean, there were two or three options, right? One was obviously you apply to go abroad and study, you apply to the IAMs, and then you apply to whatever you want to do, or you do a MS in engineering. And I wasn't very keen on doing any of those at that point. So I said, why not apply to NID? And that I think was one of the best decisions I made in life because uh, one, we had an amazing set of faculty at that point in time. Um, I mean, right from the dean, if you will, all the way down to some of the junior most faculty, they were all people who were really committed to design. They were all graduates of NID. So that whole con- culture of, you know, doing and learning versus um, measuring on outcome was the core of core philosophy of the Institute, right? So you were trained to do, you were trained to learn. And as an engineer, it was very hard for me to go there and, figure out that you don't need to produce anything, right? As long as you learn and you show them that you're learned, you're good. And, you know, obviously I, I sucked at art. I sucked at drawing. I sucked at a lot of things. But eventually I, I, I learned how the system worked and started exploring more and more. And one of the best things that they had was a fantastic library. I mean... In in 1990s, this is I'm talking about early 90s, 91, 92, when you know shipping in books was expensive. We used to have these international design magazines that I used to like, literally crave for every month, right? And I used to mark it by the day on which the mail should come, and uh, you go pick up the first copy, and you know the smell of printed ink was still fresh and on your hands, and you don't have those joys these days, given that everything is digital at this point. But so um, I kept, you know, I kept reading, I kept reading, I kept reading. My mind was blown, right? I was exposed to concepts of cognitive psychology, I was exposed to ethnography. I was exposed to a whole bunch of things that were completely alien to an engineer. So tell me, uh, Karthik, how was NID in the in, in the 80s and how was the teaching methodology different from engineering, which now when you look back, what teaching methodology methodologies would help, say, if you were in engineering, would inspire somebody like you? Because you are somebody who's 
an engineer turned designer. So if you look at engineering, uh, I think there's a very big component of UX, UI, which was not even there in those days. So therefore, what do you think was the teaching methods different there? How did it motivate you? And how do you really use that in, say, the making engineering more interesting? Great question, right? So NID at that time, and this is all my time, so I have... Um, I haven't been into NID after that. NID always had this system of guides, right? You don't have a teacher. You had a guide for a subject, like say rendering or perspective, you had a guide. And then the guide would come and sort of show you the path to an exploration and say, go explore. That's it, right? His All their participation would be probably the first day of the of So we had rendering would be for like two weeks, right? Every day you just sit and you render. You don't do anything else. It's not like eight hours split into eight classes each for an hour and lunch break and all of that. So you had only one faculty uh, or you had only one guide and they would guide you and say, okay, these are things that you need to do. And then you go refer books, you go do your own journey. And as you build your journey, you go back to them every time and say, hey, this is where I am. And they'd give you suggestions, they'd give you feedback, and they'd, they'd let you fail all the time, right? Their biggest point of intervention in your journey is to help you figure out where you're uh, not doing the right thing and then do the right thing from there, right? It's not about correcting you or, and then there's no brain dump. Engineering was very books, right? You you go through the books, there's very little laboratories. Those labs were old and cantankerous and half the time the machines wouldn't work and then you had some lab assistant and uh, that was it. So there was no connection between your hands, your brains and your subject in front of you. Beautiful. Right, then I, I ideally, like say a mechanical engineer, right? Today should be sent to a motorcycle repair shop down his street, ask him to strip his motorcycle down and rebuild it all over again in less than three weeks. That's when he'll truly learn what's an engine, what's a transmission, what's gearbox, what's you know brakes, what are chains and drive systems, what are gas tanks, and how does fuel economy work. All that was just theory, right? What would you do with that theory when you can't apply it in real life? So when people come out, they're like zombies. Their head is filled with books and they're going to figure out zero connection. And then the best part with NID was the material labs was open, the physics labs. You can go and build a furniture. You, You can go build a chair for all they care. As long as you are able to connect it to why you are doing it and what the journey is all about, right? So I think that was the beauty of NID in the sense that one, exploration was the key and two, your learning from the journey was more key than the outcome of the journey. They don't care about the outcome, right? So that that really set my brain in a buzz, right? And as luck would have it, I uh, in the in my final year, uh, I just on a whim wrote to a design firm in the U.S. and said, hey, I saw one of your products. I'm very interested in this and I'd love to come and work with you. And 
very graciously they just sent back saying what do you want to do and this is in 93 everything was done by airmail so your average speed of responses was like 3 weeks right <laughs> and i had no clue what i was going to do i just said i want to come there and i want to work they're like yeah come on over and work and they sent me my uh, you know whatever letters and stuff like that and uh, next thing i knew i i was flying out to the us so as a student most often what you really see is you want clarity about what you want to do next but in real life and work you really don't have clarity about what's going to happen so in this case what you did you uh, you know you went to fitch you start to you know look at a phone company called nokia you really don't know you do an internship there correct so so clearly there was lack of there was ambiguity if i were to call it in what you wanted to do and you wanted to explore how important is this kind of a discovery by you know figuring it out how important it is for a student to ensure that he has a passion and purpose later in his life again another great question right so ambiguity is absolutely the the most necessary element in a student's psyche right if a student student is given a path and said go follow this he's not committed to that path because he's only been asked to do something which is follow that path he's going to say, he or she is going to say yeah okay i'll follow the path and the outcome is the outcome whereas you say go discover the path in the first time then you're making him or her responsible for it then then the path becomes more important than where it leads to even today i mean this this is at 53 years old running a multi million dollar company multiple startups i've helped you know three four startups into very successful exits taken two companies into an ipo situation i i start my day with ambiguity i have no clue what the rest of my day is going to look like and i and i enjoy that if i know that i have a calendar and there are 10 things set on it i hate that day because i got to sit down and commit to that calendar and that just is a nightmare for me it is one way of operations people may say hey that is so disorganized that is you know blah, blah, blah. yeah that's my life <laughs> yeah no uh, the other thing i wanted to talk to you which caught my attention and uh, was your blog post in the 25 years of completing your graduation from anamalai university where you wrote about this thing called stepping sideways to move forward and mm-hmm. it was it was beautifully written and you really asked questions to your own classmates saying did you do anything different uh, how important is that for somebody to succeed in life because it's a very beautifully written article and we are going to definitely put it in the uh, show notes in the podcast uh, how important was it because many a times people just you know live by the day live by the task and that i think is something that caught my attention and why do you think that was so important and why did you ask those questions three key things right uh, after 25 years when i met a lot of my classmates i would say at least in the mechanical engineering division 90% of them had switched over to becoming a sap consultant 
90% of them, right? And out of them, 20% were without a job. Uh, they were between consulting gigs, you know. Uh, another 20% of them were staffing guys who were just doing body shop exercise and so on and so forth. I was like, you, your four-year mechanical engineering degree was not put to use, right? Because you're not going to use any bit of mechanical engineering in going and coding an SAP ecosystem into place. Not that that's a bad thing. All I'm saying is, you know, your four-year degree was was done. Its its life cycle was over. So you have stepped sideways, right? You or for them that was not even stepping sideways. They stepped into a completely different zone and carving themselves out. More importantly, I, I think the way I would put it is, they went with the flow. Uh, uh, you know, that's really what it is. It just it just is not about what I want to do, but it's just going with the flow, right? And and I'm really surprised when you tell me 20% didn't even have a job. Oh, yeah. I can tell you there are enough people here who have who are in their 50s who came in, you know, on degrees of various kinds and they are finding themselves very, very irrelevant out here because, out, uh, uh, I mean, e- even in India, I'm thinking, you got to be constantly upgrading your skill sets and doing a bunch of things to learn new things all the time, right? And if you don't do that and you take things as it comes along, then you got to accept what what you get. Yeah. Right? Which was what happened with them, that they said, oh, mechanical engineering, I'm not going to do this. Software guys are making more money than I'm doing that. So switch to switch to software, find that, you know, there are other sharpshooters out there who can eat you for breakfast and go along. Then you're, you got to accept what you get at that point in time. Um the challenge for all of them, like like you said, not even going with the flow, they made those choices either deliberately or by force, and they have to live those choices. There's no other choice, right? And it's very difficult to live a life where there are no choices. That's the most degrading element in a human's life that you wake up every day and you say, oh, shit, I got to go do this all over again today, your tasks are set, your goals are set, your outcomes are set. So there's no real excitement in that, which is where I feel that building yourself the the ability to explore every day is what keeps you alive, right? Uh, When I go in into client meetings these days and I look at how they struggle to either articulate their stories or figure out their sales channels and all of that. It, it it seems very, very obvious to me where they are missing those key triggers of how to build their own marketing right now. Now you see how my engineering skills, my design thinking skills. So one of the most abused words in today's dictionary is design thinking, right? If you look at LinkedIn, almost one out of 10 people will have a thing, have a title. I mean, I know of people who run an ad agency and their title says, I'm a design thinker. I'm like, God, this is like saying you're breathing and you're a breather. <laughs> breathing is for life. I mean, <laughs> you got to, you got to be breathing to live. Yeah. The same way design thinking is a process. It's not an outcome. And suddenly now it's become an outcome. And I'm like, oh gosh, I mean, why would people even want to do that? 
but again right i mean the fact that uh some of the software companies have suddenly made design thinking as one of those cool things everybody wants to be known as a design thinker or whatever it is that they want to be so coming back to that uh, blog post karthik this point that you said that you did those stepping by the side and mo- moving ahead uh, yeah. uh so literally you would have seen a lot of blind spots and can you kind of walk me through that because it's important for people to understand the challenges that you faced because it's not easy for example the fact that you know moving from say a mechanical engineering in anamalai to an nid then suddenly i see you doing at illinois institute of technology technical communications i would i would want to know that uh, we will park that for a conversation but what was the challenge when you really you know went and started exploring things you did not know oh very simple right i mean this is so 2000 uh, 2000 i was in singapore working for one of the uh, creative agencies there uh, and we had offices in singapore in hong kong malaysia all those places and um 2001 the whole economy crashed around our years right you know the dot com boom and singapore is a very small state if california sneezes singapore will catch like a severe cold forget about the us sneezing right just california sneezing so obviously i lost my job what do i do i mean i there is no way i'm going to go find a new job at that point in time so i said look this is a great time to go recharge your batteries so i went back to grad school i said what's what's the next best thing that's happening here how do you want to go recharge your batteries i figured out you know one of the courses that really had interest for me was information design as to you know the latest thing was all about how people are building more and more software into everything into everyday use cases so how do you then organize information and so i was saying okay what should i do next and obviously from contract days and from ad agency days writing was one of my uh skills that i actually you know honed into a perfection and so using writing i could get into technical communication using my design skills i could get into information design so it seemed an ideal very ideal program i wrote to the head of the de- uh, department and he said yeah of course i'd love to have somebody like you come and graduate from my program and he waived half my tuition fee and gave me a scholarship so he funded my whole education in 2001 when there was no money in the market right serendipity i mean if i had not opened my eyes around and looked around i would have probably had to go back to india without a job sit there figure out what to do next and things would have you know taken a downturn but you know just just keep again right if you own the path then you're going to keep your eyes open if you're walking the path you're going to be blindfolded and you're not going to worry how the path is yeah so true so true karthik what did you uh, what did you learn because you are somebody who's done double masters right so you kind of done your design masters and then you went and did your technical communication masters what is it that you learned in the technical communication masters which you applied to your work today so tcid was a great program where it actually brought in computer science graduates um you know uh, engineering graduates from other engineering programs 
it taught us some great subjects like rhetoric, um, you know, just ethnographic research, studying how information should be set up and, you know, visually presented so that you're able to guide the user through what he or she should be looking at. So a whole bunch of, you know, um, I would say, again, like NID, it was an exciting program of how to organize your, you know, mental noise, right? Because again, education is all about how do you control the noise in your head? We forget that and we say, no, just we'll dump a few bricks in your brain and that's all that you need. No, to me, if you, if you really look at some of the, some of the most successful people, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, all the, they, they spend 10% of their time working. 90% of their time is spent in thinking. You cannot think if your brain is a you know, noodle soup. Right? We live with so much noise in our head that it becomes difficult to recognize that it is noise. And thus we are sort of giving in to that because we have no other option. And then that turmoil leads us to just be zombies. Right? Controlling that noise is the biggest thing that teaching should do. Brilliant. That's why exploration is the best thing that happens because your mind is now completely focused on what is in front of you and what you need to do to get from one place to the next step, put one foot forward from the other versus if you're given a set of tools and say, okay, go do this, then you're not going to be using brain power. Yeah. And in that blog post, uh, I'm coming back to that because for me, it was very interesting and I could relate to that. You talked about engineers being poor communicators. Zero. Uh, and uh, today you help large technology brands really communicate the propositions very well. So what, what are the toolkits that you use there? And can you kind of walk through the nuances of B2B marketing that today you are a craftsman in this area? It's It's a... The, the, the basis hasn't changed. At the end of it, any B2B customer is a human being. And he or she is, again, dealing with noise. Her, she doesn't wake up and come to the office saying, I need to go buy this software to do this. She comes to the office saying, I need to get these few tasks done. Right? And I need to get it done in the most efficient way that I'm able to make progress, one, for myself, and two, for my company, and three, that my whole business unit starts looking good. Okay. We forget that. We forget that, right? As, as, uh, as engineers, the first thing we say is, well, this product can do these 10 things. I've seen actual demos where, you know, the audience on the other side, their eyes have glazed over and they're like, oh my God, what did I get into this morning for this demo? Why aren't you telling a story? Why, 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 why are stories the most important, Swami? I mean, why, why do stories help you remember things the most? How, how does it do that, right? It starts with a challenge. It starts with how a hero or a heroine is facing a cliff. It starts with how some, some guiding force comes and helps that hero or heroine cross the cliff. And then there's a happy ending at the end of it, right? So you remember that. 
you remember how the hero or the heroine solved the problem. Human beings, humans are doing humane things, right? That's why stories are so memorable. Why is software so terrible at building stories? They just can't do it because they think that, oh, my code and my feature set and my product bullet points are the most important, so they'll throw the kitchen sink at you. Literally, I mean, if you go look at the top five IT service companies out of India, you name them. I mean, I, I can go out on a limb and name them. I, TCS, Wipro, Cognizant, all of them. Just go look at their websites. Same old bunch of bullshit like, oh, we do digital transformation. We do this, we do that. I'm like, who cares? Tell me, look, look at, on the other hand, go look at a McKinsey. Hey, how can you embed you know, smart cities into your roadmap by 2025. I'm giving you a vision suddenly, right? That's the reason why, you know, we have this big dichotomy in, in storytelling is we come from this very engineering, okay, we know what we know, we are going to dump it wherever we, we can, and we let the buyer go and figure it out. Whereas the, the more successful of the consulting companies have figured out a way of, hey, here's how we can tell you a story. Come and listen to an IoT story. Come and listen to a security story. Come and listen to a retail story. They tell you stories and suddenly you're like, oh my God, I've got to work with these guys. Right? So that to me is the biggest dichotomy of how we are highly successful in engineering, but we are terrible in terms of being good storytellers. So uh, when you talk about storytelling, uh, there's an interesting story that how you got a job sitting in a flight with Silicon India and that gave you a huge exposure to CEOs, to technology folks at MIT, Stanford. So what did you learn in that stint? Oh. Silicon India was my, you know, three years of PhD, I would say. I came in, if you had presented a word called database on a silver tray to me, I would have stared at it and wondered what the hell you are talking to me about. Zero software knowledge, zero technology, I mean, IT knowledge, if you will, right? I had enough engineering skills, but I had zero software skills. All I knew was boot up a Mac, open up Adobe Suite and work because I was a, we, we came from a design school or AutoCAD or I could operate software. I never could know what, what went behind in building that software, right? And, you know, with, with much gratitude to my former boss who, who just hired me, he said, I know you'll do a good job. I, don't, I know you don't know software, but why don't you come and take a shot at it? We said, yeah, okay, we'll give it a try. Six months, it doesn't work, then we'll part. So the first month when I went in, went out for writing stories and interviews, I had zero knowledge about what that startup was doing. We, whatever the startup it could be. One of the things I told them was, look, I, ha I have no clue what you're doing. So unless you explain it to me in human terms that a layman can understand, and I'm telling you when I'm a layman, unlike this guy who doesn't know how to plug in a computer and start working. So you got to explain it to that level. 
I mean, all these guys were all brilliant engineers, right? So now they were forced to explain things to me in very simple terms. So they actually used whiteboards and told me, okay, here's how networking is. Here's the data layer. And this is where we fit in. Okay, that starts making sense to me. So I carried that kind of mental map with me everywhere I went. And then pieces started falling into place, right? At the end of it, it is a stack, right? If you look at the tiered architecture right from the, you know, uh, what, what do you call the infrastructure layer, the data layer, the application layer, whatever it is. It's all, it, it just took me three years to figure it out. But hey, I had fun doing it. Absolute fun in building that kind of a magazine and a portal and the kind of audience that we built. Then I realized, of course, that we were doing terribly bad because, again, 2002 and three, the economy was tanking and I had to figure out how, a way to salvage the magazine. So I realized that, you know, CIOs were one of the most targeted people at that point because everybody wanted to sell to the CIO. And so I organized these breakfast with CIO events. Boom, suddenly I had like 300 people, 500 people attending each breakfast, making money hand over fist. And uh, it was a great learning experience, but End of three years, I knew that my time was up. It's interesting. So running a magazine gives you storytelling skills. It gives you marketing skills. Uh, You're learning something new every day. And in your job, if you don't have these components, you don't get prepared for the next decade, right? So I think this is a very important point that you're talking about. And at every point in time, whether you are a home-centered designer or whether you did your technical communication, or whether you went to Silicon India, every part of it, what you are saying is, you are doing the work, but you are upskilling yourself in that job, being uncomfortable, and you are preparing and reskilling yourself for the current and for the next five years. This is very, very critical for anybody to remain relevant for 40 years, 50 years of work life. Is that not important? And do you think it's a it's a critical aspect that people miss? Great question. So I would, again, right, I relate to it in terms of what I'm most comfortable describing it. Uh, reskilling and all our big terms. To me, it's journeys. If you look at it as a journey and not worry about the destination, your enjoyment is going to be like tenfold. You're going to say, oh, I need to learn Python. I need to learn the Ruby on Rails and all these kinds of things. Then it becomes a, you know, it becomes an outcome. You're learned and then you're saying, oh, my God, I'm not getting a job because people are now saying I'm a fresher at it. And even after upskilling. Uh, now, 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 now it's Angular and not uh, Ruby on Rails or no, it is JSON and it is not Java. And I think technology changes, right? Yeah, technology changes every hour, right? Some nerd is going to come out with a new set of code and disrupt the way you've been thinking about business. That, to me, is not the value of being in this Silicon Valley. The value of being in the Silicon Valley is how comfortable are you being disrupted every day? Every day, not every week, every month, every day. Right. So the magazine gave me that exposure to meet so many of these young, hungry entrepreneurs, even seasoned entrepreneurs who are all doing these great products, great projects. And again, 
the most successful of them very surprisingly did not worry about where their outcome was the most successful of them were enjoying the journey right and here's a clue right um, you're spending eight to ten hours of your daily life a majority of your daily life inside an office right and you say oh i don't have time to go out and disrupt myself or do anything of this point in time right how many times have you gone out and lunched with somebody that you never met before? You have no clue what they're doing, but you just said, hey, you know, let's go meet for lunch. And and suddenly you're learning a couple of things. I would say for the last 20 plus years in my life, uh, and before the pandemic hit, of course, I've not lunched at home once, right? My, 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 Wife is kind of furious at me. She's like, you've eaten at the best restaurants and every time we want to go out on a weekend, you're like, oh yeah, I've eaten at that place and you don't want to go out there just because you ate during the week. That's very unfair on all of us. But I just meet random people, people who have no connection to what I do. I have no sales agenda. I have no, how do you say, uh, any planned outcome out of that lunch. I'm just saying... You know, both of us are hungry. Let's pick a spot, spend 40 minutes of good time facing each other. Let's see where the conversation goes. Then at the end of it, exit. I have met the most brilliant people for me that serves to every day as an excitement and inspiration for me to live the way I live. So how is it? Uh... So I tend to stay away from most of the networking events because I find that at least over the last, you know, five years or 10 years or so, uh, it's all become mostly a sales event. So everybody's out there with the sales agenda, not really much of a networking, networking event. And to me, the best networking is when you meet one-on-one and you're, you're, you got time without an agenda like even in the networking, it's a one-hour session. You're like, oh, how many hands can I shake and how many business cards can I get? That's your outcome. And anything that has an outcome stresses me out because then I have to follow a certain path. Whereas a lunch is my journey. Absolutely. Right? Uh, I think the, the point that I was asking Karthik was uh, the lunch was for you a learning event. Right, because you would meet a great mind. So, how is it like? You know, if you were talking about learning through such events, how is it? Uh, you know, for somebody uh, to apply it in their own day-to-day life. How do you? How do you think? You know, because it's important to meet somebody whom you don't know, and you then start to converse in topics which you really do not have comfort with, right? Because suddenly somebody would be talking to you about supply chain. And you really do not know anything about supply chain, and you are you are founding a you know venture called the future chain, and you are running it right. So therefore, how important are these kind of conversations all the time, right? The the most significant value you can do you can deliver to yourself is being in that state of discomfort all the time, and the reason are twofold. One, it pushes you to ask. Right. If you don't know, ask. 
And most humans don't want to do that because they consider that the other person would consider you as inferior. No, the other person will not do that. The other person will be more than happy to help you. In, in, in fact, one of uh, you know, there's this joke in the Silicon Valley is that if you want venture capital, ask for advice, and if you want advice, ask for venture money. Right. <laughs> so, so the key is to ask, and if you ask, you will get answers. So that's one point of being in a state of discomfort. Two is it should, instead of making you fearful, it should keep you in that state of excitement that, oh my gosh, here's something that I'm learning every day. And so that should inspire you to do something different from what you're doing every day, right? So I have this, you know, uh, one of my great friends on from college here in Chicago, she works here. And she has this whole playbook on how to be, how to shop local. And she said, you don't need to make a big effort on doing anything. Start with just one small thing, which is if you're going, if you're buying bagels every day at a chain store, go to a local bagel store and buy yourself a bagel. One step at a time, right? That's a journey. Again, what she's unconsciously saying is a journey that you got to go through to do this, Right which is kind of the central theme of my life, which is if you're not on a journey, then you're not uh, exploring enough, right? So again, supply chain, I have four, probably six customers in different parts of supply chain, right? Doing multiple things. Somebody is automating the whole procurement business. Somebody is automating how distribution is happening. Somebody's so... Today, everything is AI, machine learning, deep learning, and sensing and responding in real time because the pandemic really proved that America's supply chain was one of the most fragile uh, businesses. And, you know, so all my clients were rushing to sell different kinds of software to supply chain leaders. And a couple of them, uh, I went on sales calls with these people, right? And... I found that the supply chain leader was, you know, very sharp, number one, and two, pushed back with a lot of challenges that what my clients thought were products were not actually features that he would want to buy, buy about. And he pushed them to think about different things. And I said, man, this is something that I would like to get my hands into because at the end of it, somebody said the statement, I don't know who it is, Brands don't compete on markets. Brands compete on supply chains. Brilliant. Right? Think about your Apple experience. You walk into an Apple store. They say that I have this product, but I don't have this watch color in these watch straps. Apple can really tell you, okay, you're in Walnut Creek. The Pleasanton store has it. Go and pick it up. Or we'll order one for you. You can go pick it up or it will ship to your home tonight. And the person swipes your card on his mobile phone and the inventory is actually marked in real time over there. How smooth is that experience, right? Instead of you doing the shopping, the shopping comes to you. So which brings me now to your Purple Patch business, which you founded and today it's a multi-million dollar business. Uh, in one of the interviews, you're really talking about how B2B marketing is not just 
a spray and pray kind of marketing but it's very focused so would you have some kind of a framework to say this is really how b2b marketing should be looked at because b2b is not fashionable right b2c always gets the attention but probably out of many people whom i know in my you know three decades of experience i don't see many people focusing on b2b marketing so what is really the framework you think given you know so much of digital and iot and embedded devices that are there how do you how do you see the component and framework changing for b2b marketing from what it was say 15 20 years back to today and how would you see it in the next couple of years so uh, you know you and i know this famous saying right i know only 50% of my marketing budget works i don't i just don't know which of the 50% is actually working right so consumer marketing while it's sexy is um you know if you, if you, if you look at say um everything is about oh somebody uh, they liked something on facebook so we are going to show you more ads and more this and more that and so on and so forth um it's it's sort of the sheep following the sheep up the hill into the cliff right whereas in b2b the biggest biggest difference is the buyer knows what they want the key is finding out that buyer journey right again you will find journey is one of my Passion. most often yeah. words being used right if you know that buyer journey then you should be able to build your marketing journey alongside that right and and what that really does is help you one use low much less resources than what you should be using and to be much more focused because if you if you if you look at the pareto principle 80% of your revenue is going to come from 20% of your customer base most of the engineering uh, software companies operate without knowing who the 20% of customers are they think that spraying and praying is the best way to do which is a very consumer driven marketing principle that if you hit a million customers at least 10% would you know hook to me that that's a waste of your resources if you know your buyer journey then you should be able to fine tune your you know marketing journey your content journey and your you know your demand gen journey alongside that and that's your path to success and the journey should be full of stories because a customer doesn't buy uh, you ask me right why stories i'll tell you this when you're going through a product demo and you're telling them different stories hey this customer used this product for this this customer used this product feature for this and so on and so forth i have seen in many many demos the clients stop and say hey hold on you told me this customer uses this product feature for this particular use case can you tell me how they did it hmm. that is the sales conversion not 20 people sitting on the demo silently and saying okay we'll come back to you in two, two weeks right the, that's why you want to build your demo with stories don't build your demo with feature sets build your demos with stories once you do that customers start listening to stories they are now processing in their own mind hey how does how is this contextual in my ecosystem right now what can i do with this feature set he's saying it's going to be improving governance in my company can it not just do governance but can it do 
something else in mind. That something else is what is going to get you a purchase order, not not this you know, ten hundred pound kitchen sink that you're throwing at them, saying here are all my features. Now you go figure it out. So that I think is the key to what what we are trying to do at this point. Great. You also are somebody who manages other ventures. So you have an organ organic mom and pop store venture. You have a venture which is uh, you know future chain and also you know there is something to do with uh, you know skill design that uh, you know design spread that a company that you kind of uh, run so how do you manage multiple ventures and is that a dna in silicon valley or is it something that you kind of learnt it uh, the hard way having done it over years no i think oh, i mean there's always um you know there's always a garage startup in every garage right that's the dna of the silicon valley to me all these are again journeys right um a friend of mine and i we were going through a conference in in baltimore and uh, there was another conference going on and honestly there were it, it, it looked a lot more exciting because there were a lot more people there we said hey what the hell is happening let's go take a look at it we found out that it was an organics health and beauty product show so guess what next two hours we spent walking around this trying to understand what the mechanics of such a program was and my friend is a you know he's a he's just a financial geek and he did the numbers and he said dude this is making a lot of sense why don't we go experiment with this so guess what we just started an experimentation in uh, organic and natural products all in the beauty space and it's going pretty well um design spread was predominantly to help clients go through workshops for helping them solve their own problems by looking at it through a different set of lenses which is what design thinking is all about so we are trying to help implement design thinking as a model within their company so that's a subsidiary of purple pass that helps do those so i bring in consultants from other places to help engage on this so it's not something that i do on my own it's all so again right a journey is much more fun when you have a lot of people doing that with you versus you doing everything on my on your own so i do that future chain again greg and i have known each other for the last 20 plus years and when i was talking about it he was like hey i'd love to work with you and i'm like yeah go for it and so he's actually running the show all i'm doing is you know the titles are misleading i would say so co-founder doesn't mean that i'm i'm doing everything at this point in time <coughs> co-founder in this situation means that i i probably sign the tax invoices at the end of it but a lot of collaborators come in and enjoy the ride with us right so and that's kind of where where, where all of these ventures are fantastic so, what are the books uh if i may ask you that have helped you through your journey what kind of books have inspired you tell us some books that you know you read which inspires you is it largely technical or you know are you a do you read a variety of books tell us some books that have inspired you the biggest book that has inspired me or rather uh, like i read all these books of great personalities of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and all of them I mean to be honest with you I think it's a lot of rara and 
some of the books that are very memorable are all the P.G. Waters humor, because I think, you know, Bertie Wooster is another guy who just ambles through life in journeys, right? So, uh, so I wouldn't say, I, I read a variety of books. I don't particularly Fantastic. Uh, read any genre of any kind saying deliberately, oh my God, I got to read this book and I got to this one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, great. So one of the uh, uh, questions that I have is, if you have to do continuous learning in your career, mm-hmm. what would you recommend one should do to do continuous learning? Hmm. First is to learn not to say no. A lot of people, the first thing is, go learn something. No, that's not relevant to me. Don't worry about the relevance of it today. Learn for the sake of learning. Again, consider that as a journey. You're, you're, you'll again think of it as an end path and that will become a convoluted experience. All right? So the second thing is, don't learn with, the, oh, where am I going to use it? Learn with, where does this get actually used? Those, those are two different questions. It may sound similar, but they're extremely different questions, right? If you understand where it gets used, you are now basically understanding the implications of what that journey is going to be doing. Then you're owning the journey, right? Those, I think, are the two key things to continuous learning because if you look at the outcome and say, what am I going to get out of this? Zero. Great. I want to finally ask you one question. Uh, If you were to write, if you were to write a, letter to your 10-year-old self and advise him, what would your, what would your advice be uh, now that you have seen, uh, you know, so many decades of working, reading, learning, uh, education, what would be the advice to your 10-year-old self? Drop out of school and experiment more. Honest answer. I'm not saying I'm not saying anything about filtering out a bunch of things, right? If you don't like something that you're learning at school and don't see an application for it, get out of it. I mean, not that I buy into the whole concept of no education and let everybody be a free form builder and all of that. Yes, you need a whole bunch of basics drilled into you. But if that schooling system or that system of learning is boring, and you don't see the journey for yourself. I mean, by the time you're eight or nine, your journey models are pretty much set, right? I I used to finish my math lessons, you know, at least 20, 30 minutes ahead of time, and I used to be sitting there and sketching people and getting into trouble because I sketched the teacher and it didn't turn out too well and she got pretty upset at me, right? So I used to be fooling around, and I'm saying... That fooling around is what has kept me or brought me to where I am today. So to my 10-year-old, I would say, if you didn't have fun fooling around, then you should be doing it more often than than before. So on the ending note, right, uh, a lot of people ask me, why did I become a pilot? So I want to give you that as the ending note to your 10-year-old self, right? Be inspired. Every day, you've got to be wake, waking up and saying, whoa, 
this is mind blowing right that's the that's the life i'm leading right now so people ask me why did you learn to fly have you ever left the security of the earth without knowing what the sky is going to promise you you haven't flying teaches you that sense of being uncomfortable with yourself and then when the weather takes takes a bad turn you're learning to fly by the seat of your pants which is basically you feel the plane's movements in your butt right that no this is an honest physical thing swami it you know lower back you're going to feel how the plane is yawing and rolling and pitching and all of those things when you're in turbulent weather so when did you learn to fly i started at a very grand old age in 2012 okay you learned flying in 2012 yeah okay and uh, uh, what is the reason for you to look at being a pilot what was the inspiration discomfort you're leaving the security of the earth when you are at 3000 feet away all you're trusting is two wings and one engine how does your family take it oh they love it think about it that's the way you want to be in your life where you don't have the security of the earth underneath you you don't know what is the sky going to do for you but when you look at the co- outside the cockpit and you see this huge beautiful panorama of the earth spreading behind you beneath you and you're recognizing places and you're seeing mountains and rivers and forests and and everything that is just gorgeous and you realize aha this is life and this is beautiful you're in that zen moment of just letting go of everything and enjoying what you're doing so how often I, do you fly and do you have a plane on your own private plane on your own i used to i used to have a plane till 2019 um i just got uh, sold it out but i'm going to be doing one more maybe in 2022 once all this pandemic settles down and how often uh, I, how often do you fly i fly probably um anywhere between i would say 6 to 8 hours a month so it depends on when i find time or whether i need to go from one place or the other and 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 do things like that right so you know the 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 key is why i learned to fly was that every time i take off it's a completely different journey you can't say that one take off is going to be the same as the other right every time you land it's a completely different airport completely new set of coordinates weather how the aircraft is how you are you know the flying is that one i would say art where close to you know 10000 different factors can inflict an impact on your aircraft in less than 1 second right so how do you then manage that discomfort and you you're you're only one or two people in a cockpit you're not like a company with a 800 pound gorilla organization you're one or two people <laughs> and you know the weather is not forgiving it slaps you it slaps you right so so again that to me is the ultimate manifestation of my comfort with discomfort if you will really 
thanks karthik fantastic fantastic perspective i really enjoyed this conversation and thank i did you, too thank you very much for your time and thanks for all the uh, great experiences that you shared with us thank you so much this has been fun